So this morning we're going to do things a little bit differently in terms of our uh, approach to study. Uh, as you know, our typical approach to studying the Scriptures is to uh, go through a, a, a verse maybe or a few verses in a book sequentially, just as we've been working through Hebrews. Uh, that's our normal pattern of study. Uh, but this morning, uh, as we think very specifically about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're going to take a break from our studies in Hebrews, which we'll return to next week, but we're going to take a break. And uh, we're going to do things in a little different way, and that we're going to take a little more topical approach to our study of the Scriptures this morning. And our approach will be guided by what we just read in Acts chapter 4, where the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, in Acts chapter 4, we're being told that the apostles, uh, who were that, remember, that unique and unrepeatable group by, uh, of authoritative witnesses to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the apostles were testifying to the truth that Jesus Christ, who was crucified and buried in the tomb, he rose again, and in his resurrection, he's proved to be the one who conquered the grip of sin and death. And not just that, but in Jesus' resurrection, hope beyond the claims of death is guaranteed for those who trust in Jesus. This is the kind of resurrection truth the apostles were bearing testimony to. And we know this. Uh, just based on what we see present in the book of Acts with regard to the apostles' sermons. Uh, we see in their sermons in the book of Acts uh, not just the significance of the death of Jesus, but we see that the apostles are centrally concerned also with the fact that death couldn't hold Jesus down. He rose again. So the apostles were in the ministry of testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this morning, in a more uh, kind of scripture survey kind of way, what we're going to do is we're going to follow their example and that we're going to think through some various ways the Scriptures testify to the implications of the truth that Jesus is no longer in the grave, but that He rose and the tomb is empty. Uh, so this morning we're going to think about the Scriptures' testimony to what we can call resurrection realities. And uh, while we can't possibly plumb all the depths of, of the realities of the resurrection this morning, we will be able to gather our studies into three main categories, which I'll explain as we go. Uh, but I just tell you that so that uh, you know our angle of approach this morning. We'll look at uh, three particular passages of Scripture, but even jump around a little more so you can turn to those as we go if you want to, or you can just listen. I'll, I'll, I'll read them as we're, as we're looking at them. Um, so with that in mind, uh, to set the tone of our studies, we'll begin in this way. There was an Anglican minister by the name of Mark Ashton who was diagnosed with inoperable cancer, I believe in the mid-2000s. He wrote a book entitled, uh, On My Way to Heaven, and he's since gone to be with Jesus. But, but listen to what one author writes about Ashton's posture and some of his experience in the face of the, of the very looming certainty of death. So listen, listen to this account. Because of his faith and joy in Christ, Mark showed a great deal of confidence in the face of dying and even a sense of anticipation. During the next 15 months following his diagnosis, he talked with virtually everyone he met about, about his coming death with ease, eloquence, and poise. But this unnerved many people who found not only his attitude, but even his presence difficult to take. He wrote, our age is so devoid of hope in the face of death that the topic has become unmentionable. He made a trip to a hairdresser where he engaged in conversation as usual with the woman who was cutting his hair. And he says, when she asked me how I was, and I replied that I had just been told I had a few months to live, 
the ordinary friendliness and chattiness of the place ceased. No matter how much I tried to talk to her, I could, get, I could not get another word out of her for the rest of the haircut. Now, as we think about that account, uh, one of the things that's most dramatically displayed in those circumstances, on the one polar opposite way in which the subject matter of death is approached. On the one hand, for Mark, his approach was to, to openly speak about his own death. And even as he says, he had confidence and a sense of anticipation knowing that death was coming. There was a level of joy that was clearly present in his life, even as the nearness of death was very much looming over him. And then on the other hand, there was the approach to the topic of death that put the subject in an unmentionable category as he, as he speaks about it. So much so that to bring death up during his haircut resulted in the, in the end of conversations completely. And as we think about the topic of death, we very much understand why it can remain in the category of unmentionable subjects. We understand why the subject of death can cause otherwise lucid and amicable conversations in a hairdresser's salon to all of a sudden come to a complete stop. We understand why this could be the case because death is the supreme root of extraordinary sorrow. Uh, death severs us from those we love, and then death not only is attended by much emotional pain, but so often death brings with it significant physical pain as well. And death can come unexpectedly, and even when it is expected, the angst of watching its approach uh, grow near can be more than what seems bearable, both for, for the loved ones who are caring for the person and for the one who's dying. And, and then death is accompanied by the fear of the unknown. That death is the great enemy that no matter the advances we make in medicine or preventative care, no matter the, the caution we take, no matter the risks we avoid, no matter the amount of vegetables we eat, death comes for us. And then what? And so it's no wonder that a hairdresser's shop goes silent when the subject is mentioned. We're not surprised by that. What does cause us to wonder is how a person uh, like the vicar Mark Ashton can be diagnosed with inoperable cancer at the age of 62 and look straight on at death's approach with ease, eloquence, and poise, saying that not only does he have confidence, but he even has a sense of anticipation knowing that death is coming. The silence in the hair salon at the mention of death is understandable. The peaceful contentment of the vicar as he faces death, that's something else entirely. To look at death in his way, what are we to make of that? Only, only that either he's struggling with his own condition of mental health or he knows of a hope that transcends the boundaries of death. And of course, and of course, it is that hope that Mark had. He, he had a sure hope that even death itself would not represent finality in his life. And he had that hope because he knew the truth of what took place on Easter Sunday. He knew that hope that extends beyond death, and it's a hope that hinges entirely on Jesus' conquering of death. It's this hope that comes through Jesus' own resurrection. On the first day of the week, the ladies went to the tomb, and what did they discover? Death could not keep its prey. Death comes for all of us, at least for all of us who remain until the day of Jesus' return. Death comes for all of us. But the message of Easter Sunday is that there is the death of death and the death of Christ and new life hope reigns. Jesus rose again and in his rising he's proved and provided hope that extends from history past into our present experience and then on to glory of true and eternal life that lies beyond. 
And so it's actually these categories of past, present, and future resurrection realities uh, that, we're going to, that we're going to attend to in our study today. And as we do, we can be lifted up in our own hope of the grace that's ours in Jesus Christ rising. We can realize that there's a hope for us that extends beyond the confines of death. And we can be reminded that no matter the situations we may face in this life, no matter the darkness, the gloom, the lowness, the discouragement, whatever it may be, we look forward to a glorious day that is ultimately procured for us by the life-giving life of Jesus himself. And so we're going to think along these lines of past, present, and future with regard to the resurrection. And uh, the first thing we're going to note is that uh, with resurrection from the dead, testimony to Jesus rising from the dead, we can see that in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, past promises are kept. That's the first thing we'll see. So as, as, we, as we think back on our experiences in life, uh, there are probably no shortages of times that we can call to mind when Wonderful things were promised, uh, but in the end, those promises proved unfulfilled. Uh, maybe it was a committed promise in a relationship, or maybe it was the promise of a business partner to hold up their end of the deal. Maybe it was the promise of a much-anticipated visit or, or gift that never materialized. As we think back on our own lives, we know what it is to be the recipients of unfulfilled promises, just as we know what it is to make promises and not keep them as we should. We know about this. And one of the glorious realities of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that in His resurrection, God proves Himself to be the God who keeps His promises. In fact, this is one significant point that the Apostle Paul brings up in his sermon in Acts 13, where he references two psalms and then another passage from Isaiah chapter 55. In the span of his relatively short, at least as it's recorded, sermon there in Acts chapter 13, he references two psalms, Isaiah 55, in order to show that in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, God was doing what He promised to do from so long ago. So in Acts 13 verse 32, Paul says, and we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. By raising up Jesus. Paul speaking about the fact that through the imagery of the Old Testament poetry and the Psalms, through the direct statements of the prophets, through the, through the shadows and figures of the Old Testament that compel us to look forward to what would be true about the Messiah, in these ways... God promised through the Scriptures that Christ would not be held by death. And Sunday morning comes. And while Jesus' disciples were feeling the weighty uh, realities of their own failures of loyalty, and while they were dealing with their own sense of, of confusion and even disbelief that Jesus really could have been crucified, in the midst of death's sorrows, God's promises were fulfilled and the stone was rolled away to reveal an empty tomb. He's not here. He's risen, just like He said. And so this is a matter of critical importance for us. Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that God is the God who keeps His promises. Jesus' resurrection is a kind of due north on our compass of faith. It's a main point of orientation by which we order our believing and our trusting. We can know God's promises, whether big or small. God's promises will stand because the resurrection proves that God will do what He said He will do. And so this has enormous implications for our, for our eternity, to be sure, that future glory, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But, but this also has implications for our Monday mornings and our Wednesday evenings as well. 
But for example, we can know God's promise to care for us day by day like the lilies of the field. And, and because of that promise, we can uh, be free from that angst about tomorrow that can otherwise dominate us so much. Now, on the one hand, we can be honest and say that there are tomorrows that just seem to be bigger than others. We know that. We know that. And we often enter those extra troubling days in a place of great worry and concern. I do. I'm the first to admit, I do. We can wonder, how will things be okay as we face these seasons of life? I know God is my Father. I know He's promised to care for me. But I'm looking around at what I'm facing, and I'm just not sure He's actually going to be able to keep me like He's promised to keep me. We have these kinds of days. And in those particularly troublesome days, it's very easy to have our orientation toward God defined by the overwhelming immediacy of what we're facing. So trust seems to dwindle quickly when I look at what's coming next Tuesday or next month or whatever it is, and I start to wonder, will he really keep me like he says? The overwhelming immediacy of my circumstances starts to erode my understanding and my embrace of God's promise-keeping power. But you see, what happens with Easter Sunday is on Easter Sunday, we're oriented and reoriented in a much different way. Instead of having our posture toward God and our concerns for tomorrows tuned by what we see immediately in front of us, instead, we must have our understanding of God tuned by the reality of the resurrection. God is a promise-keeping God. He promised to raise Jesus up from the dead. He's done what He said He would do. And He promises to keep those who are His. He promises to give us the, the timely help we need. He promises not to leave us alone. And even when my immediate line of sight is clouded by circumstances that make me wonder whether God will really keep His promises to keep me, if I struggle to maintain that posture of faith based on what I'm seeing around me, what Easter Sunday teaches me to do is recalibrate my understanding of God's promises by the empty tomb. God said even death would not hold the one He sent to save us. And if death isn't strong enough to stop His promises from coming to pass, well then certainly whatever next month might hold, that's not strong enough either. God's promises clearly stand. And I view that truth most brilliantly as the sun rises over the empty tomb of Jesus. So in terms of resurrection realities, we can face even the darkest of days knowing that we serve a God who doesn't step back from what He's committed to do, but instead He goes all the way through bringing to perfect completion what He's promised will take place. In Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we have proof that God keeps His past promises. So that's the first thing for us to consider this morning and have our, and have our hearts uh, encouraged by. And then secondly, uh, in Jesus' resurrection... Not only do we have the fact that God keeps past promises, but we also see how Scripture witnesses to the present benefits that are obtained by Jesus' resurrection. So it's not just a matter of proving past promises, but it's a matter of present benefits. And there are a number of places we could go in the Scriptures uh, to speak about this, but one of the most clear places that speaks about the present benefits of Christ's resurrection is Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, we're told that, that we're buried with Jesus by baptism into death. That's how things start. So, so as we're baptized, we're confessing that we're identifying with Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. We're trusting Him to make us clean. Just like we talked about on Friday night. He makes us pure. And Romans 6, 4 tells us that, that we're buried with Jesus by baptism into death in order that, here's the reason, 
Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. So, so in identifying with the death of Jesus in our place, we also rise to the newness of living that He rose to from the dead. And, and that newness of life is described in Romans 6, as Paul goes on to apply it. It isn't only a matter of eternal new life that we look forward to on the final day of Christ's return. But that newness of life is a right now kind of benefit. Paul goes on in the chapter to explain that this new life in Christ means that right now we go about living our days. And as we do, here's the thing, sin will not rule over us, he says. Here's the present benefit. The resurrection, new life in Christ that we have, Jesus rose from the grave. Because he rose from the grave, sin is no longer master in our lives. You see, what's, what's critical to understand is that we as humanity are in bondage to sin. And, and we talked about Friday night how we all sin against a holy God and all His perfections. Uh, but what we didn't touch on is how not only do we sin willingly against God, uh, but in our lost condition, we can't not sin. The, the, the twisting existence of human transgression under God is such that because of our actions and because of God's judgment on sin... Humanity is completely tied up in the grip of wrongdoing. In fact, Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about God giving us over to the sinful desires that we have because of our rebellion against Him. In our own human lost condition, sin is now our master. There are these chains of rebellion against God around our hearts, defining our human existence under God. And while that's not a very friendly sounding thing to speak about, it's a true thing to say, and we need to have this understanding in our minds. And, and at the same time, we also know this, not just because of Scripture's witness to this truth, but simply because of what we see going on in the world around us. Just culturally, we can look around and see that, uh, just, just to take one example, while well, some Dr. Seuss books currently are being removed from Amazon's book list because of certain references in the rhymes, Song lyrics, which promote victimization and sexual objectification, are still promoted on Amazon's playlist. Right? So sin has a mighty grip on the heart of humanity. We're twisted up and totally overrun by what is contrary to, to, to true life. We're not able not to sin. It grips us. It grips us personally. It grips us culturally, politically, educationally. Uh, to quote Dylan, we're in cold irons bound. But then there's the resurrection. And like Romans 6 tells us, in the resurrection of Jesus, we not only see that Jesus himself has conquered the greatest penalty for sin, which is death. Jesus is uh, conquering as the sinless one, has conquered death. But his victory uh, has brought us to the point of new life rescued from sin's grasp. So that sin which once mastered us, now it doesn't have dominating power in our lives. As Paul says in, in the middle of Romans 6, because of the resurrection of Christ, what does Paul say? Sin will not rule over you. It's not a master. Which is an amazing truth. So, so when Jesus rose from the dead, He obtained freedom from the power of sin in our lives as we come to Him in faith. And what that means for us in the present is that instead of being caught up in what is contrary to life, even though it might seem so pleasant at the time as those temptations come and seem so shiny, what this means is that we are now free from the bonds of rebellion against God to choose the flourishing path of God's good way in the freedom that Christ has obtained for us. So what this means at one level is that we're able to completely reframe our understanding of temptation to sin in this life because of the resurrection. That doesn't mean perfection. 
As Spurgeon put it so well, which I've said to you before because it's a helpful quote for me, while sin no longer reigns, it remains. This is true. We struggle against sin. To quote the Westminster Confession, the Christian in this life is involved in a continual and irreconcilable war with sin. We know this is true. Temptations to sin comes. We tumble. We battle. But we do so from this place that in Jesus' resurrection, the power to live to God and die to sin is ours now. Jesus' power over death and the curse proved by His rising from the dead that that power is active in our lives now too, wherein sin's authority in our lives is comprehensively undone so that it has no grip, no authority, no, no demand upon us if we're in Christ. Which means that, uh, just, just for example, when anger starts to rise up in our hearts, this means that anger does not have the final word in our thoughts and actions. The resurrection life of Jesus is bigger than the anger that starts to simmer. This means that when lust starts to creep into our minds, that lust does not have the final word in our actions and thoughts because the resurrection life of Jesus is bigger than the lust that would otherwise harass and permeate our thinking. This means that, that when it comes to decisions and facing the regular bends in the road of life, this means that selfish motives and deceit and indulgence ultimately don't sway, don't hold sway because the resurrection life of Jesus is bigger than the wrongly centered motives that could otherwise compel us. So the witness of the scriptures make it clear that, that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are granted this new life and he's made us new in our hearts even now. In fact, for, for further homework reading, you can read Colossians 3 this afternoon uh, when, when you get home. But we see how this new life isn't just one that's free from the condemnation of sin because Jesus paid our debt. But that new life is also one that's free from the domination of sin because of Jesus' resurrection. Which, if nothing else, that truth brings a much different point of view to how we think about facing our day. We don't wake up in the morning bound to ways that destroy and are contrary to life. We don't wake up bound to anger, bound to lust, bound to malice, pride, greed, those kinds of things. Because in Christ, we wake up in the morning not bound, but in Christ, we wake up in the morning free. Free to live for the righteous resurrection realities that Jesus bled and died to purchase for all who will believe in Him. All that new creation stuff of, of compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness, patience, self-control. In Christ's resurrection, you are presently free. And that just may be something that, that we need to remind ourselves of with, with some regularity, just morning and evening and in places in between. I get my feet out of bed and onto the floor in the morning and I might need to say to myself, just like the psalmist talks to himself, it's good to talk to ourselves sometime. I might need to say to myself, I'm not bound by sin, I'm free in Jesus' resurrection. I lay my head down on the pillow at night and the thoughts all come flooding in and I may need to speak to my own soul like the psalmist and say, I'm not bound, but I'm free to live for righteousness and think for righteousness because of Jesus' resurrection. The sin-powered constraints in life that would otherwise drag death in, those constraints have no hold on us any longer. And that's resurrection truth that we need to constantly appropriate by God's help and in prayer and in His power. Sin does not win. It has no hold. It's dead to me because Jesus lives. So we consider how the Scriptures testify to the resurrection and it's magnificent. We see that, that the Scriptures make it clear that, that in the resurrection, God not only proves Himself to be the one who keeps past promises, 
But we also see that in the resurrection, present benefits are obtained and that sin no longer has a grip on those who are in Christ because Jesus defeated sin's grasp. And then we'll think about just one more resurrection truth here. And that, and that is the reality of future resurrection glory. So, so the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a past promises kept thing. And the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a present benefits obtained thing. But it also compels us to look ahead to this future glory that's there. And that future glory, first and foremost, is the future glory of Christ himself. We read, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus is the firstborn of the de- from the dead, so that in all things He might be preeminent. He's the firstborn from the dead, that's resurrection language, so that in all things He might be preeminent. The fact that He's the one who went through death and conquered it for us and rose first, He's the firstborn from the dead, that means that He's the one who's in the first place over all things. Just, just as we think about um, the, the historical cultural paradigm of that firstborn son having the, the larger inheritance, the, the higher place of honor. That's the metaphor that's being used here by Paul in Colossians 1. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is the preeminent one. So Revelation 1 uh, verse 5, we're introduced to Jesus in this way where we read Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and what? The ruler of the kings of the earth. There is no other who has the place of ultimate and superior preeminence but the Jesus of the empty tomb. Now, at the moment, nations may rage and the people's plot in vain, like Psalm 2 says. At the moment, the world scoffs at the notion of the resurrection glory of Christ, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. Because Jesus is the resurrected King installed on the holy mountain of God and all authority and power and dominion has been given to Him. And one day, just like Philippians 2 says, one day every knee will bow and confess the totality of His cosmic sovereign Lordship. The resurrection, Jesus being the firstborn from the dead, the resurrection proves, the resurrection secures, the resurrection displays that Jesus has first place. And that reality, while it's something that's true now, will be displayed in a future glory such that people who love Jesus will worship in that ceaseless praise at His appearing. And others who determine to live a life rejecting Jesus, others will cower before the glory of Christ at His return, crying out for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. So we make no mistake, in Jesus' resurrection, His future glory is guaranteed. And as Revelation 6 makes it clear, from the kings of the earth and the nobles and the generals and the rich and the powerful to every slave and free person, they'll see Him for who He is in His unadulterated majesty. The resurrection of Jesus points to His future glory. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything He would be preeminent. Colossians 1 verse 18. The resurrection of Jesus points to His future glory. And then what's, what's really amazing about future resurrection glory, and, and it's, only, it's only the bigness of the mercies of God that could ever make this next thing be true, but, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't only point forward to His future glory, which of course outshines the sun, but His resurrection points forward to our future glory as well. Which is what we have in Romans 8, uh, verse 28, where we have this unbelievably amazing statement that Jesus isn't just the firstborn from the dead, but He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
Jesus' resurrection is not just a matter of promises kept and present benefits obtained and his own future glory, but the amazing grace of his resurrection is that because he rose again, we will too. He's the firstborn of all who believe in him, and one day we will ourselves go along with him in that resurrection glory as he returns and gathers us to himself. Jesus is the older brother of our own resurrection. He's gone first, but we're coming. So on the final day, all who trust in Christ will rise to this newness of life. Our bodies will be freed from the mortality of this world. This future glory awaits us. Freed from the boundaries of the grave. Freed from the ashes of the urn. Freed will rise to live with resurrection bodies like Jesus himself. In eternal reconciled communion with him. And we'll live not just with glorified bodies made new. But we'll live in a whole creation made new. Because death could not hold Jesus down. And his resurrection redemption has implications for the whole totality of a new cosmos. In New England and in Britain, uh, you, can, you can walk among uh, very old graveyards. Maybe some of you have done that. If you haven't and you get a chance, you should. Um, I had the opportunity to do it one time in Wales. And in graveyards, usually with gravestones marking burials in the 16th and 17th century, you can uh, come across certain gravestones with the phrase memento mori engraved on the stone. It's a Latin phrase that means remember you must die. And then below that phrase uh, on the gravestones, there's often a picture of a skull. And the skull chiseled in the stone is very unique in that instead of, of merely a scary looking emblem of death, that skull is carved with a smiling face and attached to the skull are wings. And as the historians tell us, those gravestones symbolize something very important for an earlier generation of Christian believers. They remember death, memento mori, but for the Christian believer to be dead and buried is not the end. There's a smile on the skull and wings ready to rise. Why? Well, because they knew that the final Sunday is coming, the final resurrection is coming, and on that day... We will know the glories of the resurrection in a way that transcend all joy and not only that, but we will know the glories of the resurrection in a way that eternally eradicate all sorrow, the death of death forever. So, the topic of death comes up in the hairstylist shop. Are we who trust in Jesus silenced by the taboo topic? No, we are not. In fact, we're people who could even face a terminal cancer diagnosis with peace and a smile on our dying face because Jesus is our older brother of resurrection power. He's gone first and we're coming. All our sin paid for and conquered, life guaranteed for all who trust in him because of what he's done. So really, Easter leaves us with this one very, very important question that we need to ask time after time. Easter leaves us with one big question. Do you trust in Him? Do I trust in Him? Do we trust in Him? It's the most important question to ask on the day of the empty tomb. Are we trusting in the Jesus of the resurrection? Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that we'd have eyes to see the supremacy of Christ. Uh, we know He has the first place and as we consider what he's accomplished for us, we want to respond to that uh, with a true apprehension of his glory. May we see him for who he is and may we live in light of the extraordinary hope and guaranteed assurance 
of the eternal life that he offers to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.